It took our guest 18 years to get this presidential handshake. We're going to talk to one of the most persistent men you'll ever meet. Coming up. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. This show we're about to do was literally canceled two weeks ago by the White House. Uh, and we have with us Colonel, retired Lieutenant Colonel John Locke. John Locke, if you've been following any of the Ralph Puckett story, Colonel Puckett received the Medal of Honor on May the 21st in Washington, D.C. from President Biden. John Locke was the, is the man who pushed for 18 years for Colonel Puckett to receive the recognition he had earned in Korea in 1950. John, welcome to the show. It's good to see you, my friend. Hey, doing, Chuck. Pleasure to be on. You, you have an interesting story. You're, you're an army guy. You're, um, you're kind of, he, John's doing zoom tonight. He's from his home in the Philadelphia suburbs up in Pennsylvania. But John, you're an army guy. Tell me a little bit about your army, army career and, you know, sort of the, the army, the army in you, because you are clearly an army guy. Well, actually my career started, uh, to be at the end of Colonel Puckett's. He retired in 71, and I actually enlisted uh, back in 74, just at the very tail end of the Vietnam era. Uh, enlisted primarily for the GI Bill to use it to go forward to college, and I never used it. <laughs> Ended up spending four years enlisted, two years as an E-5, squeezed into West Point with uh, about three months to spare on the age requirement, uh, commissioned uh, combat engineer, and spent my time first armored division over in Germany, four years for the second airborne, uh, back to grad school, teach as a pr assistant professor at West Point, and then uh, deputy commander for New York District Corps of Engineers, NATO chief engineer during Kosovo over in Bosnia, and then uh, finished up with uh, two years running a simulation exercise group. So in that, the thing that impresses me is how old were you when you became a plebe at West Point? 22-year-old <laughs> plebe. I can assure you that was not my idea of fun. Uh, when you have the upperclassmen, the first he's looking across the table, Locke, how old are you, sir? I'm 22. You could have graduated last year. Thanks, sir. Keep rubbing the, <laughs> the salt in the wound. <laughs> but you had military service, prior military service, that most everybody there didn't have. I'm the first to admit that my it's, it's not quite the same today because you do have a lot of military and combat veterans. Uh, obviously coming in from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, but at the time that I was there, uh, there were very few uh, veterans, uh, certainly no who had spent uh, as much time as I did in the service. I had four years prior to service, I had top secret clearance, all that good stuff. So being a 22-year-old plea didn't impress me in terms of <laughs> having to deal with the upperclassmen. I dealt with them a little differently than most of them did. You're a U.S. Army Ranger. Were you already a Ranger when you got when you went into West Point, or did you do that after graduation? Actually, we were at the time. Uh, West Point had just started for ten years, sending uh, a, a group of cadets during the summer training. Those who volunteered, those who met the requirements, uh, go off Ranger School. We actually, my year group was eighty-two. We actually were the very last year group for quite a while. They shut it down. Uh, in terms of sending West Pointers, because uh, there's uh, percentage-wise, they did not feel it was a return on investment. Uh, out of 63 or so West Pointers that we sent that summer, only 39 of us uh, were able to secure the tab. 
and uh, there was not an opportunity to recycle. Uh, and so you either had to make it through in one shot or you had to go back two years later if you wanted to get it. So did you, you came back to Fort Benning, obviously, and did airborne as well, right? Yeah, Benning, uh, been in and out of there, uh, Ranger School, Airborne, and also Infantry Officer Advanced Course. I'm an engineer of mine, but an infantry grunt at heart. So uh, while I was branched engineer, combat engineer, I did go to the Infantry Advanced Course. You have been described to me as a Ranger historian. You have written a book about Ranger history. Um, you have chronicled a lot of, ra- of, of Rangers and Ranger moments. Uh what made you want to turn to the writing piece of that and to, to chronicle, chronicle what rangers do and the special, the special forces? Well, my background definitely was not writing at the time. As I said, I'm a STEM guy, uh, science, tech, engineering, and math. But uh, when I came back to teach, cadets are always curious about what ranger school is like. And I just happened to have kept a daily journal when I went through ranger school. And uh, I also took pictures while going through there, which is not really the smartest of things to do, but I was never caught. Uh, You know, it would have been one of those moments, you know, ranger lock, you think there's a vacation, and my butt would have been run out within a day probably. But uh, got away with it and put together a journal. And so I handed that out to cadets. And at the time, uh, a classmate of mine who'd gone through ranger school with me, uh, Les Knotts, and this is a shout out to Les because I still don't forgive him for the Ranger Patrol that we had. Uh, one of the worst ever experienced, <laughs> but uh, I never, I never, I never let him down on that one. But uh, he said, "This is a manuscript. It's a book." And so I decided to go ahead and expand on it. What I thought I could do was go to the library and uh, pull off a book from the shelf that uh, gave a little bit of background in terms of Ranger history because I wanted to put that in the journal indicating why somebody would be so inclined to go to ranger school and to do these type things and turned out that uh, such a book didn't exist. And so I I had the time on my hands in terms of being there for, uh, to teach. And so I decided to go ahead and write, uh, at that time, what I felt to be a quintessential book on ranger history. As you were writing this book, you learned a little bit about Korea and a battle in, on November the 26th, 25th and 26th in Korea in 1950. That ended up, that knowledge that you picked up on that ended up becoming somewhat of a a, a passion and a mission for you, right? Well, it did. Uh, part of, I, mean, I considered myself a reasonably well-versed military historian, and I thought I knew a lot of history as it related to the Rangers. And I was embarrassed to acknowledge, and I still am to this day, that uh, I had never read of, at that time, Lieutenant Puckett, Ralph Puckett, uh, and his 8th Army Ranger Company uh, in Korea, the Battle of Hill 205. And so I was really rather stunned and taken back by the fact that, you know, here was a truly heroic stand. Uh, by uh, you know, by an organization, by a unit, and you take a look at what he did to stand it up is just really amazing from a leadership perspective. Uh, but how this handful, <clears throat> excuse me, of Rangers outnumbered ten to one were able to do as well as they did, and so that kind of placed the uh, the germ within inside me that uh, the, the that virus, if I can say that, uh, that grew over time. 
Colonel Puckett's 8th Army Rangers, Lieutenant Puckett's 8th Army Rangers, were kind of a ragtag bunch of, they weren't infantry and they were being asked to do a special operations mission, you know, 60 miles from the Chinese border. I mean, tell us a little bit about these guys, these 70-odd guys that Colonel Puckett volunteered with Colonel Puckett. Well, the first thing is that uh, Colonel Puckett at that time, again, Lieutenant Puckett, just come out of uh, fresh out of out of uh, West Point, West Point graduate, went to some airborne schools, went to the infantry course. And so that's his primary experience <laughs> in terms of being a grunt. And so he had an opportunity to basically be assigned to Okinawa and he passed on that. He wanted to get into the conflict since uh, he felt that he could be a value there. So he volunteered to go to Korea and ended up going to a depot in Japan. And uh, it just so happened that two of his classmates had already been selected uh, to be part of, to be the platoon leaders, two platoon leaders uh, for the 8th Army Ranger Company. And uh, they recommended uh, to the Lieutenant Colonel McGee, who was taken and putting together this unit, uh, Ralph Puckett. And so literally, uh, Lieutenant Puckett hears his name being blasted over the loudspeakers, uh, primarily just hours before he's deployed to Korea. And he goes and reports to this Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel tells him that, you know, putting together a unit for a dangerous mission. And again, according to uh, Lieutenant Puckett, you know, he just said, I volunteer. And Colonel just said, don't you know what the mission is first? And, you know, Lieutenant Puckett said, yeah, I'd like to know about it eventually, but uh, I'm volunteering. And he said, well, you're a little too late. I've already selected the platoon leaders, and the only officer slot left open is company commander. And certainly Colonel Puckett didn't, uh, Lieutenant Puckett didn't see himself as being a, a captain or an infantry company commander. So he literally volunteered to just be a member of squad, to be a squad leader. Uh, but uh, Lieutenant Colonel McGee was so enamored uh, with the passion and the, uh, you know, and the, uh, the willingness of what uh, Lieutenant Puckett was willing to do that he said, um, let me think about this, come back the next day, came back the next day, and well, lo and behold, he's now the commander of uh, the 8th Army Ranger Company. When you learn more about this battle on Hill 205, and we'll talk about it a little bit in, in a minute, but as you learn more about it, you had a conversation with Colonel Puckett, the then retired Colonel Puckett. I guess he would have been honorary colonel of the regiment by then, right? Yes. Um, so you had a conversation with Colonel Puckett, the seventy fifth Ranger Regiment is what we're talking about. What tell me how that conversation went. Well, obviously I had a number of conversations with him. Uh but the uh the the question, the actually, the, the conversation you may be talking about uh, took place around, I want to say, 98 or so. Uh, you know, uh, this had been in the back of my mind in terms of uh, the uh, the experience on that hilltop, not just him, uh, but also, you know, his rangers of the 8th Army Ranger Company. And so uh, at that time, he was the honorary colonel of the 75th Ranger Regiment, uh, which is another unique story in and of its own because it is a two-year assignment. Uh, it was uh, created by, it was chartered by the Chief of Staff, U.S. Army. And every new regimental commander coming in is sl was slated to get his own new honorary colonel. And finally, six commanders later, started the seventh commander, uh, Colonel Puckett had to turn around <laughs> and, and, and turn down the honor again for the, uh, for the seventh time. Uh, that's how highly these regimental commanders thought of him. But uh, Colonel Stan, uh, Stan McChrystal at the time, a retired four-star, had uh, had an opportunity to meet with him 
And he uh, had been one of those regimental commanders, right? Yes, and actually, if I recall correctly, he was the regimental commander at the time that I spoke with him. And so I had an opportunity to uh, to talk with him on the side and, and said, you know, obviously you're honorary colonel here. Uh, we know him. We both know him relatively well. And what are your thoughts on the Battle of Hill 205? I personally think that they're worthy of Medal of Honor consideration, and he agreed. And so that was really kind of the start in terms of my thought process uh, because it was obviously, uh, you know, one of the premier warfighters within the special operations community, uh, being uh, at that time Colonel McChrystal, eventually General McChrystal. And uh, for him to think along the same lines just validated my thoughts. What did Colonel Puckett say the first time you approached him and said, sir, why don't you have the Medal of Honor? I'd like to pursue it for you. Well, he had actually indicated he thought that he had actually been submitted for it uh, initially early on. And the records clearly indicated that that was not the case. He had only been submitted for the Distinguished Service Cross at the time. Which is the second highest military. Which is the second highest. Certainly it's not something to be downplayed by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and, and the fact that he has two of them speaks exceptionally highly, but, uh, you know, so he, you know, again, as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, there was no indication from him whatsoever. He never once, uh, requested that I pursue this or even he, he begrudgingly supported my efforts. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Ralph Puckett is a pretty humble guy. I mean, so this ran counter to his core, right? Well, it did. Now, uh, you know, throughout this uh, odyssey, this journey, uh, as I've indicated a couple different times, we're dead in the water on about three different occasions. And each of those times, he personally came back to me more than once saying, John, please stop. Uh, you're, I don't want you to be wasting your time anymore. And uh, it's one of, the, one of the few orders I refused to, <laughs> to obey with him. I turn around and talk to his wife, Jeannie, who is uh, every bit the equal partner in this relationship. Uh, probably actually even more so, I think. <laughs> she, she, he listens to her quite well, just as we all do. And you know, she and I would talk, and, and finally we, just, we, we came up with what was the right approach. And the approach was that uh, we were not doing this as much to honor uh, Colonel Puckett, but it was to honor his Rangers of the 8th Army Ranger Company. Uh, by his re being a recipient of this, of this award, if we're able to achieve that for him, his men would be recognized for it. And so, again, he, he accepted it based on that. And that was the way you pushed it. And you originally started it in 03, is that right, 2003? Yeah, I started the paperwork or the, the, I'll say the research process and actually going back in, uh, when we were driving down for the ceremony, my wife and I were talking about how this all came about and, uh, it dawned on me that the timing was, uh, right around the same time that, uh, I had put together a packet for him to be a distinguished graduate association of graduates of, uh, the U S military Academy, West point. And putting that packet together is when it dawned on me that, okay, uh, if I'm if I'm doing this, and let's we're going to get him a distinguished graduate for AOG, uh, in in essence for what he did on Hill 205, and also for the rest of his his life and his career in and out of uniform, then I figured that 
I've already started this thing. Let's take it to the next step. And so, uh, so at the same time I was putting that packet together, I decided to do the research uh, for the Medal of Honor. And then in 2004 is when I started to actually bringing, I mean, obviously, as you can appreciate, uh, there's a great deal of administrative and uh, bureaucracy associated with it, rightfully so. Uh, it's it's not, a, not a trivial award by any stretch of imagination. It needs to be carefully uh, monitored and uh, pro- procured throughout the process. And so putting together that entire packet and then getting a, uh, at the time you need, well, at the time, all times, you need a uh, congressional representative to sponsor it. So at that time, I was able to get, I believe it was Senator uh, Zell Miller, uh, if I recall his name correctly. Former Georgia governor. And uh, so he was the, he was U.S. Senator at the time and getting just about, uh, I think uh, that was his last uh, Senate uh, date. And so he got him as a sponsor, put the packet together. And so it was 2004 when we actually kicked it off. And you were rejected. One thing before I get into that, let's be clear. You weren't trying to get him the Medal of Honor per se. You were trying to upgrade the Distinguished Service Cross, which was a high honor in its own right, to what you thought was the rightful designation the medal of honor right correct uh you know as i said throughout uh in a medal of honor is worthy no matter who earns it whoever is a recipient uh, but when i go through not just the the rangers the past rangers and the current rangers who have received the medal of honor and any other medal of honor recipient from you know any other unit uh, or any other service uh, i recognize that his actions uh, that night uh, were certainly every bit as worthy as anybody else's that I had read of at the time. So, uh, you know, that's that's basically the reason why I decided that uh, it, it was time. It was as much a, an, an academic challenge as anything else because um, simply the man had earned it. Uh, and you were the guy that put the words to their blood. Well, as I said, exactly. As I've always said, uh, the, all I was able to do was to put a narrative in writing that which they'd already written in blood on the hilltop. Uh, so those who I, I'm, I'm willing to be here and to speak about it because I enjoy telling the story of Colonel Puckett and his Rangers. Uh, I don't like being necessarily part of the story per se. Um, it's just an administrative thing. It's <laughs> all I end up doing sitting behind a computer clunking away, coming up with some ideas. Uh, that's significantly different than, uh, you know, fighting for your life on a hilltop when you're out number 10 to one. But two days before Colonel Puckett got the award in DC, I was in a room where you and him saw each other for the first time in, in a long time. And Colonel Puckett said, I, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. So you had a significant role in this as far as pushing it through the bureaucracy that is the army. Well, I do. I mean, I'm, I, what I uh, said at the time also was that I, I was the bookend. Uh, he, he was, you know, in a, in a book that was 20 chapters. Uh, he wrote the first, he and his men and, and the remainder of his career wrote the first 19 chapters. And all I did was write the last one, just closing it out. Well, I came in for the last chapter and it was a doozy. <laughs> uh, um, so the Army denied it the first time. What was the reason they denied the Medal of Honor upgrade? Oh, it was denied, uh, the, so I said, about 2004, put, put the paperwork in, and uh, it, it took a little while, which understandably so. 9-11 had hit. We're involved with Afghanistan and Iraq conflicts, so not necessarily a priority per se. 
so it worked its way through probably till about uh, 2007, 2008 is when they made the initial decision. They denied the upgrade. So at that time, I had the opportunity to put in for an appeal, put in for the appeal. Uh, that took about another year or so, and that was ended up being denied around 2009. And so that's, that's our first time that we're really dead in the water. And uh, no real explanation other than the fact that it doesn't was it's perceived by the board, uh, the awards and decorations, Army Awards and Decorations Board, I believe is what uh, it was called. And so uh, that's our first time we're dead in the water. And uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm rather chagrined to, just as I uh, had never heard of Hill 205 or Colonel Puckett or Lieutenant Puckett at the time, somehow I missed in the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA for 2010, that uh, Congress had required of the Secretary of Defense to come back within about six months with an explanation as to why all post all 9/11 uh, Medal of Honors uh, recipients post 9/11, I should say, were all posthumous. And uh, so uh, the Secretary of Defense came back, and while not acknowledging that uh, the criteria had changed somewhat in the selection and the awarding of the Medal of Honor, it became pretty clear that uh, what had transitioned was the fact that uh, a recipient had to essentially have lost life rather than risk life. And uh, that's not the requirement. The, the requirement is risk life, but there was an unwritten rule that you, that you had to have been killed, right? In that, in that the clearest way to say that it? Was, that was the statistical case I was able to make. Uh, what ended up happening is that uh, I did not stumble across the report until four years later in 2014, unfortunately. Uh, lost four years in the process there. Uh, but uh, I found the report, and so what I ended up doing is I went back and I did a very quick statistical analysis. That's my part of my background. I teach uh, operation research, statistics, modeling, simulation, all that good stuff. So I know numbers a little bit. And so I went back to the time frame uh, that the Medal of Honor uh, was awarded or would have been the event back in 1950, 1951. And uh, off the top of my head, I seem to recall something along the lines of 26 Medal of Honor recipients for the 8th Army. And out of those 26, 22 or 24 of them were all posthumous. Uh, 20, I think 22 were posthumous, two were POWs, and only two uh, were standing in ranks when they received it. So uh, that is, uh, I, I get, could make the case that that's a statistical outlier. And so we had that. We had the Secretary of Defense's own acknowledgement that post 9-11, um, that uh, the requirement had shifted to the degree where it seemed the perception was that uh, one had to have lost life rather than risk it. And so I went ahead to make the case that first, when he should have been considered for the Medal of Honor back in 1950, 1951, uh, the case seemed to be that the individual had to have died in the process. Fast forward to post 9-11, which is and he when he almost died. He almost died on that. Field. Oh, true. No, no, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and part of the case that I made was the fact that on three separate occasions, well, on six separate occasions, he exposed himself to death uh, to three times an enemy machine gun, three times an enemy sniper, uh, so they could be uh, identified and eliminated. And then you know, on three separate occasions, when the, the hill was being overrun, he, he ordered his men to leave him behind and, and consequently, obviously, sacrificed his life that way. So uh, he, he more than, you know, more than one occasion, uh, multiple occasions, uh, he had indicated, you know, uh, loss of life uh, for himself. Uh, but the case that I made 
in my resubmission packet, the appeal to the appeal, was that uh, statistically it appeared that uh, back in 1950-51, the case for the Medal of Honor was that one had to have uh, be posthumous. And the fact that I submitted, the, that we submitted the upgrade and the appeal post 9-11 and prior to 2010, when the Secretary of Defense acknowledged that there seemed to be some aberrations, uh, the, that's when the appeal, the, the upgrade and the appeal were denied. So the, you know, these packets and the Medal of Honor fell right in the middle of both of these uh, events. So sent that forward, uh, the appeal to the appeal. And unfortunately, got slapped back down. Uh, they would not even read the appeal. That was that proverbial catch-22. Uh, their indication was you've already had two bites of the apple. Uh, that's all that's required by law and by regulation. And so we do not even have to read what you're saying, <laughs> which they did not. So at this point, you're dead in the water. Dead in the water for the second time. Colonel Puck is telling me one more time or you know, the second or third time to, to go ahead and stop it. Uh, and, and we did for a little bit. That was, as I said, that was around 2017, probably when that appeal process finished. Uh, so, uh, it just so happened, I want to say, if I remember my dates correctly, uh, it, it was, it was in 2017, um, when the event occurred that I literally woke up one night in the, the winter of 2018 with the vision of Senator John McCain walking out on the Senate floor and putting his thumb down. And here we go. We'll get it in the camera there. <laughs> if, I could, if I could zoom myself there, there we go. And, uh, you know, putting the thumb down. And uh, I literally woke up about 2 in the morning thinking there's the man that I need to reach out to. If there's going to at least be one person who can hopefully get the Army Board to read the rationale as to why I was denied the first two times, then uh, he'd be the one being the, uh, obviously, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And Senator McCain, even though he was being diagnosed with cancer and was, you know, dying at the time, he took up the fight for you, didn't he? He did. Uh, took in, uh, reached out to his office, and he responded back. His office responded back, or he himself. Uh, but he indicated uh, definitely an interest in terms of seeing what he could do to help right this wrong. And so he, uh, he wrote uh, the, the Army Awards Board. And they turned back and they told him the same thing that they had told us. Uh, they, they turned him down. And for the same reasons that, that, uh, they had all, that we had already uh, used all of the appeal process that was required. But the unique thing then uh, the response to him was that the board gave him an additional sentence that I had never seen, that we had never seen in any correspondence before, and that we had never run across in any of our research. And the, the sentence primarily said that if, you did, if Colonel Puckett does not agree with this decision, then he has a right to appeal to the Army Corrections Board. <laughs> and so, okay, wait a second, Corrections Board. We're not correcting anything, but that's fine. We'll go ahead and take advantage of that. Uh, so at that stage of the game, uh, went ahead and put the packet together. Now, again, what I decided at this stage was to bring in a, a couple heavyweights. Uh, you know, having a lieutenant colonel submit this thing it's, it's, doesn't make much of a difference in the scheme of things. 
But uh, if I have an opportunity to bring in uh, two icons out of the special operations community, uh, two four-star generals, uh, if I'm able to bring in Joe Votel, who was, the, who was the current CENTCOM commander at the time, and I bring in uh, General Retired Stan McChrystal, and they both give letters of endorsement saying that they both believe that uh, these actions are worthy enough uh, for Medal of Honor, and they obviously both did. So I put the packet together. I cited the statistics and uh, put uh, two additional endorsements in there in the packet uh, from these two uh, highly respected, highly regarded uh, special operations commanders and generals and uh, submitted it. And so the turnaround was relatively quick in the scheme of things. Uh, received a response probably in about six or eight months, I believe it was. And the three-person the three person, uh, panel uh, highly concurred with our conclusions that the events were worthy of Medal of Honor. And the other unique thing about the Corrections Board is that they're essentially the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court and the Awards and Decorations Board is a state Supreme Court. So they were able to turn around and tell uh, the Awards and Decorations Board to reconsider this and look at it from the right reasons. And so we were able to move it forward at that stage. But Colonel Puckett doesn't get the Medal of Honor the next day. This process continues, right? Well, it's and correct. I mean, it's a, again, uh, it's, it's one of those things that uh, uh, it's not going to happen overnight, and rightfully so. Uh, but also at this stage of the game, <laughs> where we're looking at an individual uh, as of this year, he was 94 years old, and his wife is 88. So you like to be able to take that into consideration a little bit. It's been 70 plus years since the event occurred, and so uh, it pushed through Department of Army. Uh, when it, and, and again, uh, I want to give a shout out to the, the DA staff here. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, per, in our old day, we used to call PERSCOM personnel, human resources today. Uh, but uh, Lieutenant General Brito and his staff were exceptionally supportive in, in terms of all of this and, and what they've done in support of uh, Colonel Puckett. And so, I mean, you know, everybody you're put- naming here, John, uh, you know, Votel, McChrystal, Brito is a former commander of Fort Benning. All these guys had personal relationships with Colonel Puckett and not only knew the story, they knew the man, right? Oh, that's what's unique. Uh, we, uh, and it wasn't me who came up with it, uh, Rob Chopa, retired full colonel, who's the president of the uh, National Infantry Association. Uh, he actually is the one who kind of came up with the realization that you know, when he went back and he looked over all the general officers that came through uh, Fort Benning, command of Fort Benning, or the infantry course, uh, infantry school, or uh, the 75th Ranger Regiment, he literally went down the list and he could come up with almost twenty, almost two dozen names of four-star generals. I'm not talking one, two, or three-star. Yeah, we're talking four-star generals that uh, this man had an influence with. Uh, so he literally has had an impact on the U.S. Army at large. In, in a big, big way. And so now you've got to have the Army do what it's got to do. Congress also has to approve this now that the the um, corrections board has has righted the wrong, right? Um, as I said, it's still a process. So the the, the the service the service goes ahead and uh, makes its recommendations. Then it goes up to the SecDef, Secretary of Defense, and at this stage is where it stops because by law, uh, the, a, any Medal of Honor has to be awarded within five years of the event. 
And so at this stage of the game, the Secretary of Defense cannot move it forward with his approval until uh, a waiver is obtained from Congress. And so uh, that this literally was last September, October time frame. And so, uh, again, I initiated a little bit of a movement there where I put together a packet, identified uh, about, it was about 12 or 14 members of Congress, both uh, House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, who were former, you know, who had served uh, in the armed forces or obviously were for the state of Georgia. And so I sent them snail mail packets uh, with the request that at least one of them uh, submits the name within the NDAA. National Defense Authorization Act. You know, there's two ways to do this. Which you can is either the be rolled in. It's the budget. Pardon? It's the budget. The defense budget. Well, it is. It is it's, it's the budget. And along with that comes personnel transactions and everything else. So that's one way of being able to do it. And there's another way you can actually just do a separate law, a separate waiver in and of its own. Uh, but that generally can take a little bit longer. So you know, I wanted to get this into the NDAA, if at all possible. And uh, it ended up being, we. Uh, I'm not sure who put it in there. Uh, but it ended up going into the NDAA along with three other worthy names. So there's other, there are three other Medal of Honor recipients who received waivers also. So there were a total of four individuals, uh, Sergeant First Class Cash being one of them, uh, Colonel Puckett being another. And so uh, a, there was a Plumley and a Birdsong, I believe. Birdsong or Birdwell. I'm, my apologies for not recalling the name specifically. But there are four other names in there. Uh, so uh, that got passed into law eventually. The veto is overwritten, uh, overridden the 1st of January, President and that Trump, became law. President Then-President Trump vetoed that bill in a kind of a battle he was having with Congress. And then if that bill, if, had, if that veto had not been overridden, We'd still be waiting, possibly. Uh, yeah. I mean, eventually, it, it, you know, the, the veto was not a function of the names, obviously, that no. were in there. Uh, but they got caught up as collateral damage, unfortunately, in, in, in that process. So uh, every day delayed was just another day before the Secretary of Defense could uh, put his approval, his or her, if it were a female at the time, obviously, uh, put their approval on it and move it forward to the White House for final consideration. So it passes in early January, or late December, early January, but and then everything goes crazy in January. You had January 6th and the insurrection in the Capitol. You had... Uh, uh, a change of administration. Yeah, yeah so, COVID. I mean, obviously, you, a whole lot of other national event things going at the time. So, obviously, that's not going to be front and center. So, now you're sitting there waiting. And Colonel Puckett, I mean, I mean, you and I know this, and I guess we'll say it. Colonel Puckett is 94 years old, and he has many of the health issues that a 94-year-old man has, particularly somebody who's who you know who's been wounded more i mean he has five five times yeah five purple five hearts purple. He, was, he was obviously wounded more often than that but he has five purple hearts to show for it so you know so time was of the essence here if colonel puckett and miss puckett you did, didn't this didn't need to be a posthumous award so time was of the essence so you're sitting here you know as the biden administration takes hold and you're kind of trying to figure out how to get this in front of them. I mean, this was a process too, right? It was. Uh, as you've indicated, uh, obviously the administration has other priorities at the time, and rightfully so. But on the other hand, 
We've had we've been waiting this thing for waiting on this uh, recognition for the colonel and his rangers uh, for 70 plus years. He is 94 years old. His wife is 88, and consequently, uh, I gave what I felt was a reasonable amount of time for the administration uh, to, to come up with it again because this is just a pro. This, there's no decision to be made at this time. Uh, decisions have already been made. The packets together. Uh, there, there's no doubt he's he's worthy of it. And the key is uh, you just want to have the opportunity. Uh, by tradition, the president reaches out, makes that phone call, and then there's a ceremony held at some point in time down the road. But the key is for that phone call. Uh, that's pretty much it. You know, once that phone call is made, it's you can say it's official. And so, you know, we waited a couple months, and uh, there's uh, and again, this is no slight whatsoever. Uh, necessarily on the administration, certainly not on President Biden, because he's not aware of it. I'm quite confident of that. Uh, based this, upon during, what we saw. During right. this limbo period was when you and I met. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I had been trying, I had been covering it since December when I saw it in the defense authorization bill. And I thought it was being pushed out of the Pentagon. I didn't know who was pushing this until I was given your name and I called you up and realized you were the guy who was responsible for where it was. And so, I mean, I began stalking you a little bit in the process (laughs) of this because I knew you were kind of at ground zero of when it was going to happen. So as you were trying to figure this out, well, you you had earned the the, the Puckett's good housekeeping seal of approval, and and you know so me you were part of that inner circle. Me and, and, me and, and my that colleague made, Phil Phil Scoggins. Phil yep, and I you both. and Phil, and so y- you both were part of the inner circle. Uh, you had their trust, uh, which was critical to me. Uh, otherwise, you and I would not be talking, most likely. Uh, certainly not back then. Uh, but uh, you know, we we had that opportunity. You had the you had uh, their uh, you, you had them. The, their concerns, uh, taking care of that uh, very well. I was very appreciative of that, as I know that they were. And so, uh, again, gave it a couple weeks. And finally, what I was looking for, again, was just to get that phone call. It was, it was not so much the, the ceremony itself being laid out, but it was to get that phone call so that Puckus could at least enjoy uh, and, you know, some of uh, what they were to come and, and experience. And so uh, through you, you, you gave me a point of, you know, I came to you with the request and said, I'm looking for somebody. Uh, I had somebody in mind on my end, but I felt that you had uh, more current and uh, better contacts. And you did end up having a, a point of contact uh, that I was able to reach out to and, and to talk. And so, uh, and feel free to, you know, Put his name out there yeah, if you wish. Uh, you I mean, know, the report, the reporter that ended up putting this into the White House, where it got taken seriously, was Washington Post military affairs reporter and Checkpoint blogger Dan Lamont. And Dan, 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 and I had met at uh, um, had met covering gender integration in 2015 at Fort Benning, and Dan knew Colonel Puckett from that experience too. He had had a lunch with the Colonel Puckett during that time. So it really, Dan was the right guy. I mean, the White House is not going to care if I call and ask what's the delay. But Dan asked some pretty specific questions, I believe. Oh, it was. I mean, and, and actually it's just very specific. Yeah, because I, as I told you and as I told Dan, uh, I, and, I, and I call it my insurgency campaign. 
And that's exactly what it was. My intent was to get this phone call. And my intent was to get their attention, their, they being the administration, uh, to be able to tap President Biden on the shoulder and say, hey, sir, you need to get this call. Uh, and so uh, when I laid out the, the, the ground rules to Dan, uh, primarily was along the lines of, you know, you, you're, you're part of the inner circle here. Uh, if, if you're willing to do these following things, and what I need you to do is just reach out to your contacts uh, in the National Security Council and just ask a very simple question. And it was, why so long? That's it. I mean, no threats, no anything. It was just, uh, just a simple question. Why so long? And if they're not willing to respond to that, uh, Dan was willing to ask that question in a national paper uh, a couple days later. And so needless to say, he was able to get their attention. They responded. Uh, they called him back. And uh, per, you know, we, we sought out uh, Jeannie's guidance on this. Again, she's our boss. Uh, she's the one we take orders from. And she was willing to wait. The White House promised that the, the call would be coming shortly. Uh, they could not exactly designate when, but that it was going to be coming. And so uh, we, we put that uh, on hold in terms of putting out uh, that question. Why so long? And eventually, uh, the next week, the following Friday, uh, April, Friday, April the 30th, five yep, o'clock. Uh, they got the, they got the call. You know, it was interesting because that story broke in two places, the Washington post, the WRBL.com. And I think, I know I had had a piece written for two months and I'm sure Dan had had a piece written as well, but you know, it was interesting. And then, what happened after those two stories hit the web? Well, again, it was all part of the insurgency plan that uh, I laid out with the two of you. It was, you know, I love it to, uh, uh, you know, date myself here a little bit. The A team, love it when you know Hannibal says, "I love it when the plan comes together," and it, it came together exactly as I envisioned this thing, which was the fact that uh, you know that they received the call, and uh, I was I was very flattered that I was the first that uh, the colonel and Jeannie called after. Uh, to, you know, to inform me that the president had called them. They had a very nice conversation, very nice discussion. And uh, my first question to them was, did the president say anything in the sense of uh, you're talking about this? And clearly he had not done that. That's not his job or position. And I also asked, did anybody else say anything to you? And uh, at that stage, nobody had. And so I said, okay, we have a clear opportunity here. And so I uh, requested Jeannie's permission to be able to notify you and notify Dan uh, to be able to put the story out. And so uh, went ahead and let you know, and about five minutes later, the story's out, hitting the, hitting the wires. And uh, about 10 minutes after that, Jeannie gives me a call back saying that uh, she had had the, you know, she received the follow-up call with the request that, uh, you know, the story not be put out. And uh, Jeannie, in her, in, in her great wit, uh, it was very much on the mark, was just saying, well, that horse has kind of left the barn. Uh, but again, the key was that we had the opportunity uh, for them to be able to put the word out so they were able to share it with their family, share it with friends, share it with the local community, and then actually let it rest for a couple weeks. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we accepted uh, the request uh, not to hold any uh, additional media events, and so we did not. Uh, we honored the request. Uh, but we got exactly, uh, or at least I got exactly what I was hoping to get for the puckets, which was a little taste of what was to be coming for them. They had the opportunity to share it and experience it uh, with family, friends, local community. Then they got to uh, rest a little bit uh, before, uh, before you know, the, the, the uh, I don't want to say a zoo because that's a, a, you know, a denigrating type remark, but uh, before the uh, the hoopla 
uh, that uh, took place uh, at the White House last week. Let's go to that. I now. should say honor. <laughs> I don't want to again. I don't want to denigrate at all uh, the experience. It was just truly amazing. Hey, Dylan, can you pull up the picture? Okay, the, John, I've just put on the screen the photo that you took, and it was in the White House on May twenty first. Since the Puckett family there with President Moon of South Korea on Colonel Puckett's right side kneeling, and President Biden on his left side kneeling. That's the best picture I have seen from that ceremony. And I guess it was another part of the insurgency because you kind of stepped in front of the national photo press and got that photo, correct? Well, yeah, I I mean, what's what's kind of funny about that is that uh, I'm very very proud of that picture in the sense of it it turned out the symmetry was just perfect. Nobody's blinking. Uh, You get you get you get the colonel's walker just to the left, the shade of it there, like the standing soldier sentry. Uh, waiting for his boss, and it turned out just perfectly. I feel badly for a lot of other people at the national and international level because my seat essentially placed me right in front of the only live feed out of the East Room, and so people, <laughs> for the most part, saw the back of my head. Fortunately, it's not uh, it's not as balding as the front is, uh, but still, uh, <laughs> they probably saw they probably saw more of my more of my back than they desired to. Well, we have got, we've spent almost 45 minutes talking about the backstory. Now I want to talk about the man. Somebody walks in and goes, who's Ralph Puckett? What's your elevator? I mean, it doesn't have to be elevator speech. Who's Ralph Puckett? What is unique with that picture that you showed and the event itself? Because the, because the Medal of Honor ceremony, Again, that was another one of the things that I was very fortunate that the speechwriter came across and did what I requested. And it was to tell the story of Colonel Ralph Puckett. Colonel Ralph Puckett is much more than the Battle of Hill 205. Uh, what is unique about that, about the Medal of Honor, is that this does, for all of us who know Colonel Ralph Puckett Jr., the Medal of Honor is nothing but validation for what we know about this man. It does not change our opinion of him one bit. Uh, it's, it's no surprise. Uh, as, as one, I think, uh, one, one ranger that you interviewed had said that was just Ralph being Ralph. That was uh, Greg uh, Camp, a Columbus. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and that's a great quote because there was nothing he did. And, and again, think about this. You know, you're, you're talking about a 21, 22-year-old second lieutenant, pretty much fresh out of, out of West Point. Okay, he stood up this company. He made them rangers within five and a half weeks. Uh, Non combat arms, individuals, cooks, clerks, mechanics. Uh, You know, it's just stunning to sit there and think about what he did to first train them and then to lead them in this. And again, there was nothing at all about that night that uh, he rose up and was more than he normally is. And so, uh, but that was just the start of an incredible career, uh, you know, to go on and become, uh, again, he volunteered for Vietnam. He did not have to go to Vietnam. Uh, that was a topic of conversation with his wife, Jeannie. And she finally agreed with him because his rationale was, if I can go there and just save a few lives, save one life, it's worth it. 
And so he went there as a battalion commander. Uh, he literally, as a battalion commander, had his command gunship, you know, his, his helicopter, put him down in the middle of a major firefight. Uh, as a platoon leader, company commander, saying at the time, we were ready for, this was Alamo, it was the last stand. And, uh, you know, they themselves said, you know, the colonel's on the ground, the ranger is here. That was actually his moniker. And, and that's, that in and of itself says something because, uh, you know, rangers uh, as a community, we're all type A's, we're all anal. We all think that we're the greatest, and yet uh, every single one of us, everyone who knows or even has heard of Colonel Puckett, we bow to him. He, he is the ranger, and we all are second tier, second level to him. You know, interesting. We had a photographer that we had hired on Thursday, and he did the interviews uh, with us and stuff. And Phil and I were talking to him about 2.30 or 3. We were getting ready to go do Colonel Puckett's news conference, which was interesting in itself. And he looked at me, and I said, so what do you think? What do you, you, don't know, you didn't know this story when you walked in. This was a videographer, D.C. area guy. I said, you know the story. He said, you know what strikes me about Colonel Puckett is – this is the guy who has lived a life that we all aspire to live. He's done the right thing at every turn. He has lived a life that is a model life, and everybody from his kids to those who know him now to those who served with him say, you know, this is a model guy. He goes, there's no hint of scandal that I've heard. You know, this guy has just spent 94 years doing the right thing. And don't, wouldn't we all want to be able to say that at the end? And I thought oh, that was it is. I, and, and that's exactly right. We, we, a lot of times, well, uh, quite obviously, we, we, we put uh, people up on the pedestal and uh, somewhere along the way, invariably nine out of 10 uh, develop feet of clay and they, and they come tumbling down. And that's the unique thing here with, uh, with Colonel Ralph Bucket and with Jeannie. Uh, they are the quintessential uh, couple. And from that perspective, they were a team. They worked together. Uh, she did not always trust me. She did not always agree with them. I think one of the greatest stories uh, she told, you know, she told my wife, Judy, a uh, number of weeks back, you know, she had uh, when they were at West Point and uh, she had been asked to talk to a number of uh, seniors, firsties who were getting married. And so during a question and answer session, uh, one of the cadets asked her, said, uh, you know, did you ever think of divorce? And Jeannie thought for a second, she said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so this is not a couple where, you, you know, they, they didn't have their issues. They didn't have their discussions, but they knew how to work through it all. And, and again, you know, the, the, the colonel's focus has always been on doing what he felt was right. And in the end, what he felt was right truly is the standard. Uh, it, it's, it's something for all of us to emulate and to admire. You know, my colleague Phil Scoggins captured beautifully in a special uh, uh, a special show that we did the love story between Ralph and Jeannie Puckett. Their kids, uh, uh, Marty and um, Thomas, just talked so greatly about, so eloquently about that love story. And, you know, and I see it as a love story, but I also see it a little, a little differently too. And you touched on it a minute ago. She or earlier in the show, she's every bit as equal, if not oh. his superior. <laughs> I mean, she 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 is a tough, tough Southern the, woman. Uh, the, the, there are those of us, uh, you know, we, we have the wives. We know who's boss. Uh, I had a I had a uh, a classmate's uh, father 
who was a full colonel, served in Korea and Vietnam, commanded men in combat. And he's, he told me very simply, he said, you know, I used to command a thousand men and gave an order and they moved. I can't get a family of five out the door in an hour. And right then and there, I understood who the boss is. And you see that with Jeannie. Yeah. Jeannie and, and the thing is, she is sharp. She is an exceptionally sharp woman. Uh, yeah, just, just truly amazing. Who, who is incredibly fiercely loyal and loving. Oh, very much so. Um, let's go to the White House ceremony. When you were sitting there, and what did you think when you saw him push that walker away as they were starting to read the <laughs> citation? Well, I had two thoughts. The, the, the first was that's classic, and and anybody who goes back and you watch the video, uh, it's 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 truly enlightening because you first you see a, a couple things. You you see two presidents speaking at a Medal of Honor ceremony, and one of those presidents is from the country where that event occurred. Uh, he would not be there. He understands he would not be there speaking to this man if it were not for him. Eighth Army Rangers and others who's fought and sacrificed in Korea. He understands that and appreciates that. So you have first an event where you have two presidents that has never occurred before. And then you also have, again, the president's comments talking about not just that event, which is generally what most people talk about at a ceremony of this magnitude, but they went on and talked about the rest of his career, of what he did in uniform and out of uniform, how he's <laughs> continued to serve the nation, uh, which is truly amazing. So, you know, so that in and of itself is the context of what's happening here. So when, when um, President Moon came up there to start his comments, President, I mean, Colonel Puckett attempted to stand up. And President Biden walked over and put his literally put his arm or put his hand on his shoulder and said, stay seated, please. You know, and so Colonel stayed seated and, until it was time for the citation to be read. And that's when he went ahead and stood up. And that's when the poor, you know, this poor aide comes over and, and brings the stroller out there. And the colonel, you just see him, he just he pushes, he bats it away. And then she reaches out trying to take his arm very gently. And you can sit there and see he swats her hand a little bit and smiles at her as he's doing it. Okay. He smiles at her. And so he's standing there. So the first, you know, to answer your, uh, you know, the first part of my answer to your question is the fact that a proud ranger, obviously, he wants to stand here on his own. But then, I wrote the citation. I know how long this thing is. And the second thing is I'm, I'm starting to live in, I, I have fear because I know this is going to drag on and on and on because of all the things he did. Four minutes and, and 12 and, seconds is exactly and, how long you know, So is. I literally, uh, all, I, you, can, you can tell from my own stash of pictures. I, I didn't take a picture at this stage because I put the camera down. I'm leaning forward. I, you know, I have a straight shot to the platform uh, to get to him if, this, if he starts to move. But – this is where you really have to appreciate, you know, President Biden for the type of individual he is. Set aside the politics for anybody, okay? This is the kind of individual this man is. He is, he is every bit as sincere as what you see and what you hear. He's watching. He sees the colonel starting to waver a little bit. And I tend to believe he looked over at the aide because the aide, she, she's got fear in her eyes now. And, and I'm looking at her and I'm, I feel badly for her. And so, you know, President Biden looks over and he reaches over. He literally puts his arm around there and he whispers over. You see him whispering into the colonel's ear. He says, sir, I need you to help me stand. Mm. Talk about a class act. And so, you know, he sits there and, and you know, the colonel's not going to fight that. And so the aide comes up and now you see the two of them you know, holding him up. and not holding him up, but showing that he's steady uh, for this. So it was just a it was just great experience. 
with a few moments of terror. <laughs> President Biden seemed to have a genuine respect, admiration for Colonel Puckett. It, it seemed real in the remarks. It seemed real in the conversation I've had with the Puckets about the phone call. He, am, am I overstating that or is that right? Oh, no. And, and they also, they both have uh, something very similar in terms of personal experience that they both have lost a child. And uh, as you know, I had a sister who passed, so I, I saw the impact on my own parents. Uh, she was young. And so you have President Biden, he lost his son, Bo, and you have Colonel and Mrs. Puckett, who lost their daughter, Jeannie. And so, you know, they, they had... Uh, they had an ability to be able to reach out and touch each other uh, from that personal perspective. And, and they did, uh, they did talk about that a bit. Um, and so, uh, but as you said, they just, is, is personal down to earth. And that picture that you showed me of uh, the family gathering, uh, it was pretty hilarious watching him up there. I mean, literally, he's orchestrating everything. He's choreographing these, this thing. He's pulling everybody together. He's joking. You know, he's, he's, he's telling, you know, some of the in-laws and the sons saying, hey, you with the gray hair, come on, move over here. You know, I need to get you in the picture. He's looking at Thomas when Thomas is moving around somewhere else. You, he's, he's calling out to him, you know, Thomas, you, you, you're trying to sneak away. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's great with all the little one-liners, the quips and the jokes. And then he calls the president of South Korea up. And they both take a knee next to this man. And look at the hand of the president of South Korea. It's, on it's his, resting on Colonel Puckett's knee. I, I mean, the symbology, okay? Anyone who understands Asian culture, you don't do that unless you truly respect an individual. And so here you have the president of South Korea, not just kneeling with the president of the United States, but he also has his hand on Colonel Puckett's knee. That's the that, family. That's, the symbology is just stunning. That's the family photo of a lifetime. You know, it's it's interesting. And the last question um, that I'll ask you, and then we'll do a couple of things and clean up and end and this thing. But thanks for being here. But the last question is, when you walked into the East Room of the White House on the 21st, knowing it was going to happen, knowing that the White House had very subtly made it part of their, their uh, political policy with regarding South Korea, it was really interesting in the end how they how they wove yeah, that in. How they tied that in. Yeah, they, they certainly made that a piece of their yes. political... It was brilliantly done. Um, uh, and what did you feel when you saw that medal go around Colonel Puckett's neck, knowing how long you had fought for that wrong to be righted? Uh, I mean, it had, had two diametrically opposed feelings. The first, quite obviously, uh, proud that the recognition had occurred uh, finally for him and for his 8th Army Ranger companies, uh, his Rangers. Uh, you know, you had uh, Master Sergeant Mel, Merle Simpson there uh, who gets a shout-out, okay, from the President of the United States, a standing ovation. Uh, the Secretary of Defense standing right in front of him, the Vice Chief of Staff, uh, the Joint Staff, you know, right next to him and, and, and clapping and giving him his due. Uh, Colonel Puckett stood and clapped to give him his due. So, you know, from that perspective, it was extremely rewarding. But uh, on the other hand, there, there was a, I don't want to say an anticlimactic aspect to it also because I knew we were going to get at this point. I knew we were going to get here. Uh, all anybody had to do was read Read what we had written, okay? That's all that was necessary. Common sense prevailed. Just need that opportunity for somebody in a position of authority to read it. 
and to appreciate what the word said about what these individuals, what these men did on that hilltop. And so from that perspective, uh, you know, I never had a doubt that we we're going to get to this point. My concern was that he was here to appreciate it. And mission accomplished. Lieutenant Colonel, mission accomplished. We're at a point now where we kind of turn the tables. That's what we call it in this podcast, turn the tables. I've been asking the questions, and I've more or less <laughs> tried to, to to do the narrative. And, it, you know, I could talk about this story for years. This is the story of a lifetime for, for me as a journalist. But you get to ask me a question. If there is there something, you know, you know, I've been asking you questions for almost three months now. I mean, is there anything you want to ask me? Well, we've dealt through a lot of stuff. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and, and you were also at the end here. You know, I was able to get, carry the ball for 98 yards, and I was not able to push it over by myself for that last two. You were a part of that, and I definitely agree, you know, appreciate that greatly uh, in, in terms of being able to you know, make this final uh, break in the plane, so to say. Uh, what I think is interesting from uh, everything that uh, we've talked about and seen, again, this is an imagery uh, piece. Uh, you had indicated earlier that you had first met Dan while talking about uh, you know, meeting with Colonel Puckett during women going to Ranger School and whether they should be uh, allowed there. And I was, uh, I was with uh, the first women at West Point, okay, class of 1980, and I was 82. So I was a plebe when they were juniors, when they were what they call cows. And so, uh, you know, we've been around women in the military and you've had that experience with them. And I thought what was really symbolic was at the end. And I, and I had the picture, I didn't send it to you and I trust others have taken it. But what you see is the Colonel being escorted down off, you know, he's, he has finally has his medal. He's being escorted down off the podium to, uh, to his chair. And he's got, uh, you know, the major female military aide. Uh, he's, he's got, uh, and, you know, and he's got his granddaughter, who's a captain, a uh, field artillery captain uh, on the other side. So here you have an individual, you know, the most decorated soldier in U.S. Army history, uh, fittingly being escorted by women. And, and that's the way he would want it. And that, yeah, and I think, you know, gender integration has been a big part of what I've done in my Army coverage. And the, the picture you're talking about wasn't lost on me. Um John, uh, our guest for the last hour has been retired Army Lieutenant Colonel John Locke. And John, I mean, you're joining us via Zoom, but it's been a it's been an outstanding hour. I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us and walk us through this story. And this will be part of the official record. WRBL has documented Colonel Puckett's Medal of Honor pretty extensively over the course of the last <laughs> last two and a half months. And I think. This will be another piece of that, and you know, and I appreciate the time. We're at the point now where Dylan has to walk me through saying goodnight. Hang with us for a second, John, but then I'll sure. Uh, first of all, the Chuck Williams show can be heard Tuesdays on seven p.m. at seven p.m. on wrbl.com. Coming soon, we're going to have it on Audible, Spotify, and other podcast locations, and the social media piece, Chuck Williams. I can be found at Chuck Williams on Twitter, Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, and then on uh, Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. Our guest has been John Locke, and he shared an amazing journey that he's had 
to right a wrong that happened 71 years ago. Thanks. And I want to say this as we close this edition of the Chuck Williams Show. Be nice to everybody you see. Right now, none of us know the baggage other people are carrying. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Chuck Williams Show.